Welcome to the PEDS-NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm Becky Carson, Clinical Assistant Professor at Catholic University, and either I'm the faculty member teaching your primary care pediatrics course, or I'm just the chatty lady with a lot of opinions and a microphone. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about the decision-making in respiratory diseases. I'll give you a confession. When I was in graduate school, my knowledge of primary care respiratory disorders was pretty much only book smarts. I'd spent years as a pediatric cardiac ICU nurse, so I could distinguish between the crackles and ronchi on my ventilated patients. I knew the blood flow of congenital heart defects causing left to right shunting and therefore congestive heart failure. I knew the workup for ventilator-acquired pneumonia when my patient spiked a fever. I could even predict giving Decadron prior to extubation to reduce respiratory inflammation. But comparing the history and presentation of croup, bronchiolitis, or pertussis in a primary care patient walking in fresh off the street who I'd never met before and didn't come along with some brilliant progress note written by a PNP seemed like a Herculean task. And that's why we talked about illness scripts last week. So then after spending month after month integrating that book knowledge with my newfound clinical knowledge, it eventually started to make sense and I could confidently diagnose it. But then came management. And oh man, how was I ever going to decide whether to admit this tachypnic bronchiolytic or send them home? I came into practice amidst some big discussions on how we manage bronchiolitis and the guidelines changed a few years after I became an NP. I realized that knowing the guidelines, learning them, loving them, making sense of the underlying pediatric physiology and disease pathophysiology would help me actually make my decisions. So I never gave an albuterol trial again. And thankfully, the nose Frida was brought to life a couple years after that, and what a game changer. In some ways, being an avid follower of the evidence helped with those decisions. But then again, sometimes that comfortably tachypnic baby was still perplexing. Were those retractions too much to send home? How fast was too fast? And who was going to get mad at me if I admit them when they don't need it? Whether you're in the primary care setting or an acute care setting, if you're having trouble confidently making a decision on whether to admit or send home, keep the baby for observation a little while longer maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour, any more than two hours and you're really just procrastinating. Sure, we're focused on length of stay metrics and we try to discharge patients quickly. You've got a busy schedule, but sometimes in order for you to be able to sleep at night, you need to make the right decision. And sometimes you just need a few more minutes for a baby to declare themselves. Let them fall asleep and then count the respiratory rate and watch their work of breathing. If it remains scary, admit them. If the baby remains coarse sounding, but drinks their full bottle over a little longer duration than they normally would, and they're tachypnic but not working, send them home. Of course, we're only sending them home with what? Let's say it all together. Specific, objective, return criteria. They're not drinking at least 50% of their usual intake. They're pulling under their ribs or their sternum. They have increased fussiness. They have fever for more than five days. And what do we always add? Parental concern. 
So make sure you've made contact with the PCP if you're seeing them in an acute care setting so that we can follow the patient. Based on the day of illness, I might warn them that I actually expect them to get worse and I might even see them back in the ED because we all know that bronchiolitis is worse on days three to five. So if you're the PCP, make contact with the family every 24 hours or so until that baby starts to show improvement. And when in doubt, admit. We'll let the hospitalists come up with the next set of guidelines to reduce admission rates. As we went through our case studies this week, I noticed something that tripped up a couple of students. We had a bronchiolytic baby with wheezing, and we were working on the differential diagnosis surrounding this presentation. A couple of students put asthma in the differential diagnosis, where the correct answer should have been a viral-associated wheezing or bronchospasm, which actually does have an ICD-10. Remember that in this six-month-old, we can't call it asthma yet because this is our first episode of wheezing. The child might develop asthma or even recurrent wheezing with viral illnesses, which is now treated actually the same way as asthma based on the 2020 updates. In children ages zero to four with recurrent wheezing triggered by respiratory tract infections and no wheezing in between infections, the 2020 asthma update guidelines recommend starting a short course of inhaled corticosteroids. They studied budesonide BID for seven days. At the onset of respiratory tract infection with PRN albuterol for quick relief, compared to previously only using the PRN albuterol alone. Diagnosing asthma in infants and young children is challenging and complicated by the difficulty in obtaining objective measurements in lung function in this age group. We want to have caution so that we can avoid giving children inappropriate prolonged asthma therapy. And we know that the diagnosis of asthma is multifactorial. The history and physical should show the presence of multiple key indicators which increase the probability of asthma, but inevitably spirometry is needed to establish the diagnosis. The chronic airway inflammatory response and structural changes that are characteristic of asthma can develop by the preschool years. An appropriate asthma treatment will end up reducing that morbidity. We often call it reactive airway disease until there have been multiple episodes where the diagnosis is more evident. So it's important to get help from our pulmonary colleagues in making the diagnosis if you need to so that we can treat it appropriately and avoid poor long-term outcomes of inadequate asthma management. I'm very interested to see how future asthma epidemiologic data will turn out with this new edition of the 2020 recommendation giving a burst of inhaled corticosteroids for URI-triggered wheezing. We'll continue to monitor. As we finish up our two-week focus on the respiratory system, I want to give you all one more pearl that might help you achieve what I call the triple aim in pediatrics, compliance, satisfaction, and evidence-based practice. We've talked about how children, especially those in daycare, can have eight to 14 colds per year, many of them having fever, which we know is very distressing for parents, or they might even have back-to-back -back illnesses. So these parents can be frustrated or scared and they want you to do something for their child. Often they think that doing something is writing a prescription for an antibiotic, but we all know that that is terrible practice and poor antibiotic stewardship. So how do you give the family what they want and still practice evidence-based medicine? I once had a preceptor that said a family needed a written prescription for every visit. She would write her discharge education on the little green prescription pad. 
Suction bulb when congested. Use saline. Increase fluid intake with Pedialyte if not tolerating formula. Scribbled it down on her little RX pad with her name on the top. Her idea was that giving them something in hand on this specific prescription paper was the most valuable component of the family's satisfaction with supportive care. The CDC has viral prescription pads that are available on their website, so you can use them to quickly write that same supportive care. My practice has developed into writing prescriptions for any over-the-counter medication. Tylenol, ibuprofen, saline, Pedialyte, over and over and over again. I often work with patients who have Medicaid and suggesting a supportive care therapy that they have to pay for when money might be tight at home can be a real barrier for their child getting what they need. And it can result in unnecessary return visits when the symptoms persist and they don't have what they need. So my extra two minutes of writing an over-the-counter prescription means that the child can have their medication paid for, done. Do you know how expensive Pedialyte is? It's like $5 for a bottle, and it's mostly water. And when you expect a child to go through a couple of bottles in their illness, that can really add up. Even more if you have multiple children with the same illness and you're going through it faster. I never want a self-limited, mild illness to cause undue economic burden to a family. What's more, you can give exact weight-based doses for medications like Tylenol and ibuprofen to ensure that we're maximizing therapeutic dosing based on the child's individual weight. And the best part, doing it for every patient, whether they have Medicaid or private insurance or their self-pay, has helped me reduce my implicit bias and become more empathetic. I used to hear a lot of providers in the ED say, oh, you can afford to buy it, it's over the counter oh, you've got a cell phone or you've got your nails done, you can afford a $2 bottle of Tylenol. But you don't know them. And who are you to judge this parent? In my early years in practice, I used to get so frustrated by some of these, frankly, BS chief complaints that were coming into the ED. Hangnail. Rule out bug bite. I've seen them all. They would want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a juice box. Meanwhile, I had to chart this big, ridiculous note on them and their hangnail. So one day I was sitting at my desk, rolling my eyes and charting, and a pair of siblings sneaked out of their room and came up to me and they asked for another sandwich and graham crackers. Didn't you already have one? And they said, yeah, but we didn't eat since yesterday and we're hungry. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. They were hungry. So yeah, I gave them another sandwich, another juice box, and a fistful of graham crackers for the road. It's forever marked in my heart that we are doing this for the kids. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.